Hello, listeners. Welcome back to The Goods, our 24th episode and our third episode in Time Loop Month. How are you doing today, Brian? Pretty good. We're closing in on our quarter centennial, in a sense. That's right. Next next episode's going to be 25, so I think we'll be brainstorming some ideas of how to make that significant. Yeah, I have some ideas. That, that should be fun. But... For today, episode 24, we are focused on the movie Premature, an indie comedy that came out in 2014. And as I mentioned, we are in the midst of our time loop month. Every movie we're watching in February has a Groundhog Day style time loop in various genres and various styles. Now that we are on our third iteration, Brian, I'm curious, how are you enjoying this theme month? Do you think it's a success? Do you think there are drawbacks? So going into it, I was a little wary that we'd put ourselves in a box like this, but I think it's working out all right. One good thing about having a theme month is that it helps me break out of my mold of just sharing movies I already like. And it's like, huh, to find a movie to meet that set criteria, I need to actually like do some research and it encourages me to see some movies I may not have otherwise come across. It's true. Limitations breed creativity. Yeah. What has your experience been? I've really enjoyed it. I've gotten into it. I mean, I think I mentioned a couple of times that I just really enjoy the structure. I just find it compelling and I've really enjoyed seeking out time loop movies. I think it gives us a little bit of, a little bit of fun, variety in in the sense of we have a a dedicated structure, dedicated topic, whereas, you know, our our first couple dozen episodes, well, not quite a couple dozen because this is the 24th, but our first 20 or so episodes, it it was kind of free for all, whatever, whatever came to our mind. I think giving us a little bit of structure, it's a fun twist, but I don't know if we'll do it every month. Uh, Another question I was going to ask, probably overdosed on it. Have you sought out any time loop movies other than the Man, the five we've discussed now? Not yet, but I think you have gone above and beyond the Call of Duty, right? Yeah, I, I want to do even more. I've, I've seen two that we haven't talked about. I, I saw Source Code, a 2011 thriller starring Jake Gyllenhaal. It's a little bit less of a direct knockoff of Groundhog Day because there's kind of a organization that's kind of controlling it, but it does involve Jake Gyllenhaal reliving the same eight minutes over and over again, trying to solve a mystery. And that was pretty fun. I enjoyed that. I remember seeing the trailer for that one before some other movie that I went to see and thinking it looked interesting, but also not really comprehending that time loops were involved. I I do remember the like shadowy agents, but I, I didn't put together that things were looping. Yeah, it's got a couple good twists. It's pretty short. It's only like 85 minutes, I think. It's worth uh, it's worth a watch. Uh, the other one I watched was, uh, see if I can remember it. I think it's called The Map of Tiny Perfect Things or something like that. It's a time loop movie that just came out on Amazon Prime actually less than a week ago. And it's sort of your 
teen dramedy version. Think the tone of Fault in Our Stars without the cancer elements, like the the John Green era, I guess. Fault in Our Stars, but instead of cancer, time loop. (laughs) That's pretty much it. I thought that one was probably the weakest of the ones we've watched so far. It does have a couple of fun ideas in it, but uh, there were significant portions of the movie where it didn't matter that it was a time loop. And if you're going to be a time loop movie, at least make it matter that it's a time loop movie. Like a lot of parts just felt like a generic romance. But let's pivot to our time loop question of the week. So one thing we decided to do is each week, other than the first week where we kind of introduced the premise, each week we're asking a open-ended, unrelated to the weekly feature, time loop related question. So here's my question for you, Brian. And this could get a little personal here. If you had to relive one day of your life so far over and over in a time loop, what day would you pick? Okay, so I knew this one was coming eventually, whether it be this week or next week, had to bite the bullet at some point. And there's a couple of thoughts that go into the selection of the day if you would want to get stuck. Like if you had to pick a day to be looping, what what do you pick? And I think there's a couple influencing factors. So maybe there was a day that you lived that was really, really good. Like everything about it was great and you'd just like to have that experience again. Uh, but you might want a day where you were just like went a lot of places and interacted with a lot of people because that could have a lot of potential you know, side quests that you could do, things that you could pursue that you didn't in the initial run. Or maybe we talked about this a little bit in our last episode. Maybe you want a day where you don't see anybody and then you have even more freedom to decide what you can do, uh, including you could just sit in your room and like do your research or whatever if, if what you want to devote yourself to is researching and building new skills. I'm maybe rambling a little bit at this point, but I wanted to share a short story that I read when I was in elementary school that has really stuck with me. I've talked a little bit with you about this off pod, Dan. There was this short story I read in like an Alfred Hitchcock collection or something. Some some collection billed as like spooky stories that it wasn't really, but the premise is the protagonist of the story is gifted a stopwatch. I think he sells his soul for this stopwatch. And what it will let him do is stop time at a moment in his life that he chooses. But instead of everything freezing, it'll be like everything just persists in that moment. So he can keep experiencing whatever he's experiencing in that moment forever. Interesting. But as his life goes on, he is always unsure whether the moment that he's currently living would really be the best moment to freeze because maybe there's something better ahead. And so he goes through his whole life, never quite confident enough to press the button because maybe something better lies ahead. And then the twist ending of the story is that the devil comes to collect because he sold his soul and he gets put on this train to hell And so he's flying through the netherworld on his way to hell on this locomotive. And he comes to realize, huh, you know, 
I'm surrounded by gamblers and prostitutes and all these mischievous sinners. This seems like a fun place to spend some time. And so he stops the watch and he's always on his way to hell, but never quite gets there is the end of the story. That's clever. I like that. But I think a little more interesting is the dilemma earlier on where he's never quite sure if he really wants to stop there. I share that story because I feel like the day that I would choose doesn't break much new ground for the pod. I've talked about it a little bit in our previous time loop episodes, but I think I would probably choose a day that I could use Tokimeki Memorial style, which is just (laughs) try to do a little bit better interacting with women. I think that fits with a lot of our time loop movies too, like multiple. It's like, just choose the dialogue options a little bit better, progress the relationship a little bit more successfully. That's a good point. Yeah, they, they've all had romantic elements to some extent. That is evocative. Um, I, I think that's an interesting angle to take on this, basically that you'd want to have a day where you could improve it and make it the best version of that day whether for romantic purposes or or other purposes. Right. And if it was already a good run, you don't want to risk fucking it up. Right. Right. So that's not how I thought about it. I thought about it in terms of, I don't know how long the loop is going to go on. One thing we've learned from the first two movies that we watched, which were our intro, which was uh, Groundhog Day, and then... We focused on Palm Springs is that it could go on for the equivalent of years and years and years, thousands of repeats of the loop. On the other hand, as with happy death day, happy death day to you. And as we'll see today in premature, that's not a guarantee in these time loops. Sometimes maybe it'll go 10 times, you know? So I kind of went on the thought that assuming that I had to live it thousands and thousands of times, what would be a good sandbox almost like good opportunities for me to do the things that I would want to do with these large spans of time, but also minimize risking totally screwing up my, my life or like having to do unpleasant things every single day. Or like, I don't know, I guess what I'm saying is I didn't think about it in terms of either what's a day that made me happiest because I agree that that's kind of the intuitive response. Like what was your favorite day? But I don't think that's the day you want to live over and over again, because if it was a perfect day, yeah, it might be perfect again. But even if it is perfect, every time you do that a thousand times, you lose the magic of it. And also it might end up being less perfect as you relive it. So I didn't go that route. And if I had, I obviously would have thought about like the very special days. There've been a lot for me, my wedding day, birth of my each of my kids there's this day in 2012 a few months after I got married where I for the first time ever finished writing a draft of a novel and I just it was like the biggest high that I've ever had and one of the happiest I've ever been and like best I felt about myself and so that day crossed my mind but that was a day I had to work really hard to achieve that feeling so I don't think I would want to try to do that every single day Similarly, there's no real days where I want to go and try to get it right because I screwed it up. Nothing really came to mind for me for that. So I'm looking at what's a day that's a blank slate with a lot of opportunities. 
And I came up with two possible answers. And the one that I landed on is I would pick just a generic weekend day in June 2012. So this is where I am not yet married. And it's not at all that I don't want to be married, but that if I am going to have to live the same thing over and over and over again, I wouldn't want to have to screw up the mechanics of my marriage, basically. And I was uh, living at my parents' house. It would be warm because it was June. Uh, I kind of have complete freedom to do whatever I want that day. I could watch movies all day. I could read books. I could go out exploring. I could go do crazy things. I was kind of living on my own at that point. And I think that's a good kind of framework for repeating a day. The, the other thing that came to mind, this is kind of more the side quests potential that you were talking about, is a day in college. And I would probably pick the second semester of my sophomore year of college. A nice good weather day because there's something about spring at college when people are out and about, there's so many people to meet. There's always things going on, things to do. I just think that that would be a fun, wide variety of things to, to relive through over and over again, people to meet, new things to experience, etc. cetera. So um, either one of those, I landed on the, the blank slate day as opposed to the side quests day, but uh, that was kind of my thought process. Nice. I will say I've definitely been impressed by your ability to finish NaNoWriMo multiple times. I've always been tempted and never really even made a serious attempt. Uh, I'd be interested in reading your writing. Thank you. Yeah. Brief tangent on that since I brought it up and you brought it up. I think I've won, they call it winning NaNoWriMo, which is basically, do you get to 50,000 words in one month? That's National Novel Writing Month for those of you you listeners who are not familiar with NaNoWriMo. The idea is you try to write a complete novel or at least 50,000 words towards a novel in one month. And I've tried it many times, not since my kids were born, but basically every year prior to that since about 2011. And I think I won four or five times. Uh, the first year, like I mentioned, was 2012. And that was awesome. I ended up actually editing that one too. Stashed away somewhere. I I reread part of it once. And I think if I were ever to do anything with it at this point, it would be a drastic rewrite. But it was still cool to finish. And actually, it, <laughs> it was an example of the series of tropes that we talked about in Some Kind of Wonderful with the, the boy who... Uh, maybe has a shot with the popular hot girl, but has to realize that he's actually in love with his best friend. I don't know if that sounds familiar at all. It does. It rings a bell. <laughs> um, I also had a couple other ones that I really liked. I, I wrote one in epistolary format. So it was like this guy and this girl were writing back and forth and their ev adventures eventually converged. There was one year I did a, I don't know what you call it, but it's basically a bunch of short stories from different characters' perspectives, and they overlapped in different ways. That one I had to outline pretty extensively for, and that was fun because I got to mess around with different twist endings for each of the short stories. As I've mentioned in the past, I consider myself a twist ending junkie. And then another notable one was Katie, my wife and I, co-wrote. So we together got to 100,000 words, a 
novel that was, I guess, also epistolary in that we were writing back and forth, but we would do shifts. She would write in the morning and I would write in the afternoon and we would just react to what the other was doing. And it didn't end up going anywhere, but it was a very fun way to, to spend a month. So, yeah, that, that's been fun. I'd like to do it again sometime once my life settles down. And I'd certainly invite you to to join, Brian. Yeah, I have great respect for somebody able to follow through on a project like that. The closest I've come is when I did my 100 film reviews. Total, that was about 140,000 words. So it was not a cohesive narrative more just putting my thoughts down on paper, but I felt some accomplishment when that was at a close. Nicely done. Do you know how long it took you to finish those 100 pieces to get to that 140,000 words? Oh, well, I started in April and I did one entry a day for a while. And then in like the last 10 there were some pauses in between and I finished like December 24th. So it wasn't, wasn't super compressed. Normally it would have been about three months and it definitely took longer than that, but a good chunk were completed in three months. Nice. That's a lot of writing though. That's something to be proud of. All right. So I'm ready to start talking about 2014's premature. Let's do it. So this movie was directed by Dan Beers who has not really done much else of note. He's helped out in a lot of movies and a lot of TV shows, but this is really his one feature-length directorial effort. I'm not convinced that that isn't your pen name. <laughs> Dan uh What do I like? Hmm. Yeah. Do you love me a good beer? <laughs> I like that idea that this is just... I, I ghost-directed a... Uh, an indie comedy back in 2014. Yeah, by the way, crazy to think that 2014 is already coming up on seven years ago. Yeah, it's wild. I occasionally have these moments where I think of some event and how long ago it was, and it just kind of blows my mind. Like, the song I'm on a boat is more than a decade old. How could that possibly be? That song is still my my jam. It's not... It's not I'm starting to feel like an old person. Like that would be played on classic rock these days. Yeah. I mean, I was thinking about that with like the party rock anthem last year. I'm pretty sure when everybody was dealing with LMFAO is like 2010. And that was, that was 10 whole years ago. The U S office came out in, I want to say 2004 or 2005. So we're only a couple of years away from two decades from that. Wow. That was the first show that came out live that I obsessively followed as a young adult. I mean, I guess the Simpsons maybe when I was a kid, but yeah. Yeah, man, those milestones, it's it's just going to keep happening too. As They Might Be Giants said in one of their novelty songs, you're older than you've ever been, and now you're even older, and now you're older still. I don't know if you've heard that one. I don't think so, but I do enjoy a good They Might Be Giants track. So this movie stars John Karna as Rob Crabb. And there's a whole ensemble of side characters around him. We have Craig Roberts as his best friend, Stanley. Katie Findlay as his good friend, Gabrielle. I think the biggest name 
in terms of cast is Alan Tudyk. Is that how you say it? I believe so. Alan Tudyk as Jack Roth, and he plays a college admissions interviewer. I'm always happy to see Alan Tudyk. What's your connection to Tudyk? Where do you you know him from? So the first movie that I saw him in, at least that I noticed, was a British film called Death at a Funeral, where he plays a guy who has accompanied his girlfriend to, I think it's her father or her grandfather's funeral. Um, And he's got to make, I think it's the grandfather's funeral and he's got to make a good impression on her father. But to calm him down, she gives him these pills and there's like a a mix up. So she gives him what's basically LSD. It's like a, you know, a drug invented for the purposes of the plot, but it just makes him really, really loopy. (laughs) And so he's supposed to be buttoned down and he's acting crazy. So what I think Alan Tudyk excels at is like comedic improv, which we certainly get some of that here. Exactly. We'll get to it, but I think he's quite good in this too. For a while, Alan Tudyk has had an ongoing role as sort of the new John Ratzenberger over at Disney. They stick him somewhere in all their main studio animated releases. Oh, really? I didn't know that. He's their totem. So... I think it started with Wreck-It Ralph, where he plays the villain King Candy. And then he's in Frozen as the Duke of Wesselton, who they make fun of calling calling him Weaselton. Ah. Then, what was the next one? Big Hero 6? Was that 2014 or was that later? I'm not sure. Uh, but he's in Big Hero 6 as kind of the red herring villain. The guy you think is the bad guy before they reveal that it's somebody else. Then he's in Zootopia as a weasel named Weaselton. Oh, yeah. I remember seeing that. That was a throwback to the Frozen character. And so they just kind of slip him in somewhere in all the main Disney animated releases these days. So I mentioned this as we were signing off last episode. We have the explicit tag marked on our podcast just because it allows our conversation to be a little more free-flowing. And we can curse or hit on topics that are maybe a little bit on the edge of of what would be acceptable with all audiences. We're going to have to do some of that in this movie because it it definitely goes there a couple of times. So I I don't know. I think this is probably the raunchiest movie we've watched so far, Brian. Yes, I would agree. It it earns the explicit tag, (laughs) at least in terms of subject matter. So this movie opens with a dream sequence as... Rob, the main character, is in the midst of having sex with a woman. And the camera cuts around and we see that this woman has three breasts. And this is, of course, a (laughs) visual thing that reminded me of Total Recall, where one of... I haven't seen that movie, but even though I haven't seen it, I know it's famous for the gag where there is a space prostitute who is, I think, an alien who has three breasts. But... Uh, As this dream goes on, uh, Rob comes to orgasm and we see that happening in slow-mo over his O-face as the title credits roll. And this scene's kind of interesting because he's listing off ways that he gradually becomes aware that it is a dream. And once we start time looping here in a little bit, 
it kind of presents the possibility that maybe this could be a dream. Exactly. I, I think the purpose is that it's basically setting up a framework of how he might think about time loop. Was that everything that happened all a dream? I think you're right. So then we see Rob awake and he awakes for some reason, no blanket over him or anything, basically spread Eagle on the, his bed and he has soiled underwear from his wet dream. Yeah, who sleeps this way with no covers? <laughs> I don't know. And his mom barges in, and she is aghast at the sight in front of her. And she says, just throw the sheets in the laundry. And this <laughs> visual gag and mom's aghast reaction will be the equivalent of our I got you, babe, or wake up from Palm Springs or whatever it was in Happy Death Day when they, she opens her eyes and uh, Carter is there. It's easily the most bizarre one yet, I would say. Yeah, this is another one where it starts in the bed. I want to see one where they're like, like I mentioned a couple episodes back, like running down the street <laughs> or something when the, when the loop reports repeats. Go watch Source Code. I guess I have to. We see Rob get ready for the school day. He dresses up nice. At first, I thought it was a school uniform, but then he has this conversation with his dad as he's walking out the door where we learn that Rob has a college interview for getting into Georgetown, which is where both of Rob's parents met. And we gather that it's very important to his parents that this interview go well and that Rob has also sort of latched onto this dream, although perhaps not as passionately as his parents want him to get into Georgetown and go there. This is one of many moments in this movie that had me thinking of some kind of wonderful because it's important to the dad that the son get into college. And that's probably something that's important to a lot of dads, but it's like an important plot point in both movies. Oh, that's a good point. I guess I've seen enough senior year comedies where I don't really think twice about the conflict of the parents dream versus the kids dream but right it, but as as other things happen in this movie i think you'll agree that the parallels with some kind of wonderful present themselves definitely agree on that yeah also give a moment of appreciation for the georgetown shout outs for about the past year i've been working over at georgetown running the live stream camera at their sporting events and it's a pretty good gig uh, they have private school money. Nice. Yeah. You were rooting for him to get into Georgetown here, I guess. I was. Yeah. It's, it seems like a nice place. I didn't go there personally, but they've been good to me. I've known some people who went to Georgetown, and they all seemed nice. So. so Rob gets out the door, and he hops on his bike and rides to school. And on the way, he meets up with his friend Stanley, who has sort of friends with benefits thing going on with one of the hot girls at the school named Lisa. The exact geometric mechanics of this were not clear to me because it seemed like it was his house because Rob went there, but also Lisa is getting picked up by her friends there. So I don't know exactly where this was supposed to be, but uh, that's okay. The important thing is he meets up with, with his friend Stanley. I'd like to know more about how the whole thing came about too, but Yes, that's what's going on. This is one plot thread. I'll, I'll get to this and the things I, I 
wish could have been different about this movie, the not so good things, where there are some promising plot threads or characters that don't really end up getting due attention. Like this whole thing that Stanley has with Lisa, just kind of thrown out there and never really explored, except for one other scene. But Stanley and Rob ride to school, and when they get there, they meet up with two of their geeky friends, Gabrielle, who Rob has been friends with since third grade and is planning to watch the final of the National Spelling Bee with that night per their their longstanding tradition to kind of make fun of the spellers. And they have like a little gambling pool about who's going to win the spelling bee. And uh, yeah, definitely meant to <laughs> set up that these these two are are long friends and also major geeks. I was wondering, did you buy Rob as a geek? Um, yeah, actually. I mean, he's not a super geek, but he reminds me of people I've known who are totally disinterested in popularity and do their own thing. He's kind of got a, maybe not an aloofness about him. He's not like neurotically geeky or anything like that. The same way that Arthur, the other character is here or something, but I don't know. Did, did it bother you? It works. Okay. He just struck me as kind of blank slate protagonist boy. I think that's true. I think that's fair. Yeah. The other person that they meet is Arthur, who is kind of a strange character here. He's short and kind of, and a hobbit looking and kind of obnoxious, but he's clearly spelled out to be the super wunderkind genius. What did you think of this character, Arthur? In a couple of our reviews, you've mentioned things being broad. I think... Arthur is a little bit of a broad gag character. Um, he reminded me a little bit of like Bowlby on Jimmy Neutron or Rolf in Ed, Ed and Eddie. Okay. Yeah. He's like the, the foreigner, the foreign exchange student. But he's not exactly that either. I don't know. Cause he, he doesn't do the typical foreign exchange cultural difference stuff that I think of. No, you're right. He's a little more street smart. Yeah. I don't know. To me, he's an example of an idea that they had that they couldn't really figure out the best use for. And here, here's a fun fact. The the actor who played Arthur, his name is Adam Riegler. <laughs> his most prominent acting credit is that he played young Shrek in the Broadway run of the Shrek musical. <laughs> I can see it. But yeah, they, they meet up with, with Gabrielle and Arthur and Rob kind of has this conversation with Gabrielle where they kind of reconfirm their plans to watch the Spelling Bee that night. Have you ever watched the Spelling Bee finals? I have, yeah. Not the full thing. I've watched the end. I knew mm -hmm. a girl who finished in the top three at TJ. Yeah. So we've talked about it a couple of times, but we went to a magnet school. And certainly quite a few people there were plugged into the spelling bee scene. But I remember that one of the first viral videos, like pre-YouTube, back in the albino black sheep and e-bombs world days, was of a kid fainting at the spelling bee. Do you remember that clip? No, I don't think I've seen that. He's like standing at the mic and it just gets so anxious that he keels over and all the kids in the back are like looking down at him. But 
I had a friend who was on the TJ It's Academic team with me, and he was not that kid, but he's one of the kids in the background in that viral video. Oh, interesting. That's it's pretty funny. You got a connection. Yeah, right around the time that we were in high school, that documentary came out called Spellbound. And the spelling bee really had a moment where everybody was talking about it and really kind of understanding how insane some of the training regimens that these kids go into are. Right. So it, it rang true that at least some of these people would be into that. So when it gets in the school and, and all these things, by the way, are I don't know what the right word is for them, but I've kind of adopted the word totem. These things that we will see repeatedly on the time loops. So the next totem we sort of get are these bullies on the volleyball team have a, a super soaker filled with piss and they shoot Rob in his fancy clothes, ruining his pants. So he's going to have to wear a gym shorts to the Georgetown interview. And uh, right around this time, he also bumps into Angela, the blonde bombshell that he tutors. And she invites him to her house that night for a private tutoring session. And he's declines at first because he has plans with Gabrielle and he's hesitant to break them. But Stanley, who's ever horny, always talking about sex, always has his mind in his mouth in the gutter, basically tries to convince Rob that Angela wants to get with him and, and that he should cancel on Gabrielle and go hook up with the, the hot girl. I mean, I would say that's a defensible <laughs> piece of advice. It depends, I guess, on where his head's at, but he's done the spelling bee thing multiple years. I don't know. It's 2014. You could DVR that if you needed to. <laughs> it's like the one thing happens every year. The other thing probably does not. Probably, yeah, a once in your pubescent life opportunity, potentially. At least that's how he's thinking about it. But Right. Yeah, we, we contextualize this more later on. But yeah. Although, obviously, the important thing is that he has this commitment with one of his best friends that he doesn't want to break. So, Right. Then he has his interview with the Georgetown admissions officer. And at first, it seems like it's going well. The interview doesn't care that he's wearing gym shorts instead of his nice clothes. But then uh, the interviewer, this is Alan Tudyk, by the way, he has a breakdown about his recently deceased wife. Just the first example of several times we get Alan Tudyk crying, and he's he's a great crier. Very funny. It reminds me of how in the show Community, Troy Barnes, the character played by Donald Glover, would frequently cry. And Donald Glover is probably the best crier I've ever seen in terms of just being hilarious and fantastic to watch. But Alan Tudyk is up there, too. Yeah. And of course, whenever it loops, you think this interview is going to go differently, but he <laughs> pretty much invariably finds a way to break down into tears. That's true. Yeah. So the fact that this interviewer, the character's name is Jack Roth. The fact that Jack cries makes Rob think that the interview went poorly. And so he's kind of in a state of distress. Rob decides that he's going to just go through with canceling on Gabrielle going to go to Angela's because why the hell not? And he wants to get lucky with Angela. So he cancels on Gabrielle and appears at Angela's where she like, you know, when you, when you see the invitation to come tutor and the fact that Stanley reads it as, Oh, she wants to get with you. 
what I was thinking here is that they're reading the situation totally wrong and it's just going to be a tutoring session. But no, in fact, Angela basically instantly comes on to Rob, starts hooking up with him. And just as things start to get kind of steamy, we see his, his O-face, the one that had been in slow-mo from opening credits, and he has his orgasm and bam, the loop starts back over. Just throw your sheets in the laundry. We see him with his soiled underpants once again. The loop has started. Yep, this is where we learned that the trigger for restarting the loop in this time loop movie is Rob having an orgasm, which is just an insane idea for a movie. I don't know who came up with this, but this is it's it's pretty wild. It works well, and it means that each of the movies we've focused on so far have had a different method for restarting the loop, uh, at least a way that you can restart it. Because obviously in Groundhog Day, it's just the set period of time, the 24 hours. Every day at 6 a.m., it starts over. Then in Palm Springs, it seemed like it started over after a set amount of time, too. But also there was the portal in the cave out in the desert. But if you went in there again, you could like short start the time loop over again when you wanted to. In Happy Death Day, it was whenever Tree died, she would start over. And here Rob needs to orgasm. Rob has the most control over his looping of anybody we've seen yet. He's basically got his dick time machine that he can carry around in his pocket and use when he needs it. Yeah, and I mentioned the the time loop movie that just came out on, on Amazon Prime. I think it's called The Map of Tiny Perfect Things. So one of the things I actually did like about that movie was it showed the loop starting over. And in that one, it always happened at midnight at the end of the day. And one of the things that the looper does is he basically counts down until just mere seconds before, not even sec- mere seconds, like less than a second before it would be midnight. And he jumps off of uh, like a, a really high, like a top of a building or something like that. We see like this kind of weird dilated time thing and it sucks him back to his bed right at the stroke of midnight. And so he knows that he can push it, his limits right then. It's, it's a clever thing. We didn't ever see anything quite like that in any of the other ones. So it's fun seeing all these different triggers and all these different time loop movies. Yeah. I felt like as in happy death day, Rob could have done more here to test his parameters. Like if he does no nut November or something, (laughs) does he get a longer window of time? It seems like he would. That's true. Just like in happy death day, always dies before the end of the day. We don't know what happens if she were to manage to get asleep Similarly, he doesn't have to go to Angela's or Gabrielle's. He could just stay in his room and fall asleep, you know? Yeah. Where is the timeline where he becomes a monk? (laughs) (laughs) So then we get the the first loop restart, something that we've seen in maybe everyone that we've watched so far, where the character's basic reaction is, man, am I having a really intense bout of deja vu? And he lives the day basically the same. He's able to predict a couple things, like I think he hops out of the way of the pea gun or, or something, but he always ends up going to Angela's. And of course, the same thing happens every time at Angela's. It always restarts after his premature orgasm and his hookup session with Angela. And 
he actually does this day maybe three or four times before he's like, you know what? I don't have to do this same thing every single time. So one morning when he really feels like he's locked in on the mechanics of it, he goes to Stanley and Stanley's in the midst of his hookup with Lisa and like tries to explain it to him. And Lisa, who is again, one of the hot girls, there had been this slide that Stanley had been repeatedly doing in each of the loops where he basically says that she's like a, I don't know exactly what the term is, but basically she can just say, okay, come now. And immediately uh, Stanley goes to orgasm. And we see that happen here. Exactly. We get this kind of ridiculous gag of both Stanley and Rob uh, orgasming in the uh, Stanley's bedroom and the loop restarting. And he kind of starts to experiment that, really confirm that this is the the thing that triggers the loop. Right as he wakes up, he's like, all right, let's see if this is right. And he pulls up some porn and he masturbates. And yep, the loop starts immediately upon completion. And then we start to get into kind of the weird existential stuff at this point. So Rob is kind of panicking. This is my life now. And he kind of, this is the moment he goes back at the bullies that had been shooting the piss gun at him. And they chase after him to beat him up. There's the whole exchange back and forth and they end up chasing him to beat him up. And he like locks himself in a room and they're basically trying to break into the room so they can kick his ass. And he, <laughs> this I thought was like the funniest promise of the premise moment. He realizes that he can get out of getting beat up by masturbating, coming to completion and then re-waking up in his room. So it just has this visual gag, this ridiculous gag of the bully storming in as he's in the midst of that and just looking completely confused about what's going on. Yeah, it was brilliant. It felt like Marty driving away from the terrorists in the mall parking lot. Yeah. Just got to get up to 88 miles an hour and you can be off. (laughs) But he's got his pants around his ankles. Exactly. In the middle of the chemistry room or whatever. And then he starts to go to the carefree, doesn't matter what I do phase. When he kind of has this realization that that's how he can get out of it. He steals a golf cart, drives through the hallway. He manipulates this hall monitor, this geeky hall monitor, and this other girl who's kind of walking through the halls and like ends up having them get together. And he uses the teacher's lounge bathroom because whatever, there's no consequences. If he gets in trouble, it doesn't matter. He eats junk food, which I did not buy as something that a high schooler would care about. Like, I don't know. I always ate junk food when I was a teenager. That's one of the things about being a teenager. You can eat junk food and still stay pretty skinny because you have ridiculous metabolism. But that's been a staple of a few of our uh, our time loop movies is the junk food bit. It really just felt like a Groundhog Day callback. Yeah. It's even donuts. Is that one of the things he eats in Groundhog Day? I can't remember. I think so. He eats a lot of stuff in Groundhog Day. Yeah. I thought it was <laughs> funny, though, that <laughs> like, OK, I can do anything. What am I going to do? I'm going to use the bathroom in the teacher's lounge. <laughs> that felt like something out of like recess, like not even a, a high school movie, but like a, a third grade story, like something they would do in Captain Underpants or something. I agree. That's actually one of my complaints with this movie is I know we're supposed to think of Rob as this button down guy, but I just did not find it plausible that <laughs> when he is confronted with having absolutely no consequences that he doesn't do anything more off the wall than he does. He does have one run that's pretty off the wall, but in general, he doesn't really go that wild with it. Drive a golf cart through the halls. I don't know. 
Uh, but one part of, of this loop is that he buys some weed and he basically talks Gabrielle into going and smoking a joint with him on the bus. And this is kind of where we have the big heart to heart between Gabrielle, Rob calls him Gabs, and, and Rob. And they talk about how they became friends and how they've been friends for a long time and kind of he's grateful for that, etc. I actually thought that was a nice moment where you kind of actually got to see this connection between them and actually buy it, I suppose. Yeah, it was cute. It reminded me a little bit of some of the stuff with Nini in HSM TMTS. That's right. Yeah. They have that moment in the piano room in one of the episodes where they have a similar conversation, but his friends are really starting to worry about his erratic behavior, his lack of fear of consequences. And he acts like Stanley already knows. And then Stanley's like, what are you talking about? And he's like, oh yeah, I told you three this mornings ago about what was going on, which I thought was a good line. Three this mornings ago. And this is where it starts to get a little dark for him living without consequences. So there's this teacher that the guys kind of refer to as hot and suspect that she might have implants. And he, walks up to her and just gropes her in the middle of class and attempts to confirm that they are, in fact, fake breasts. He gets in a fight with a girl who picked on him in fourth grade and ends up groping her, too. By the way, that one character is another example of someone who just kind of gets thrown in there who I don't think she had been mentioned or seen prior to this whole confrontation there. Well, early on, part of the loop that starts out the day is the dad said... The dad is listing off moments where the son has gotten overshadowed or failed at things in his life. He says that when you lost the student election to the mascot, I said nothing. When you got beaten up by Sally Levinson in fourth grade, I said nothing. Oh, I didn't put that together. That makes sense. And so that's something that gets said each morning in the loop. Right. And then you see her later on. Gotcha. So this time around, Rob has done all these pretty mean things, pretty bad things, I would say quite bad. And he gets pulled to the principal's office where he's informed that the cops are on their way to arrest him. And this is kind of when he starts to sink into existential dread about this life that he's living. They didn't explicitly dig into it the way that they did in Palm Springs. But I, I was thinking of Palm Springs where he says, you have to live with the things that you do even if they don't remember it, basically. So he tries to use his trick of masturbating to escape the loop, but he finds with this existential dread that he is unable to be aroused. He's, he's feeling too lousy about it. Well, it's partly the, the dark stuff going on, but also I think the girl bully stomped on his junk. And so I think he's a little bruised at this point. That's true too, yeah. Although I, I liked thematically the idea that as he becomes gloomier and gloomier, he can't manage to arouse himself, which is like his magic trick for getting out of all of his consequences. That's fair. It's like he doesn't have the plutonium for the return trip. <laughs> and he's even in the midst of a girl's locker room. And there's this bit that I would say came off pretty cringy, but where they have Stanley essentially attempt to assist in Rob's arousal by doing some racist Asian dirty talk. 
Yeah, so it's like the full metal jacket, me so horny voice. Exactly, yeah. Is what he's going for. And <laughs> he's got some bits in here. I was trying to figure out where he possibly came <laughs> up with some of this stuff. In the end credits, we see some behind the scenes kind of outtakes and extra takes. And somebody behind the camera, probably the director, is like giving him things to <laughs> yell. And so I wonder how much time the director spent thinking of some of this stuff. But to to get just give you some of the flavor, it's it's things along the lines of do do me doggy style and then we'll eat dog. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. There's a poo-poo platter joke, that sort of level of stuff. One that I thought was pretty funny that is is not necessarily racially sensitive. <laughs> she says put a finger up my butt and use me as a puppet (laughs) i will say even though as i mentioned i found myself cringing as i watched that one craig roberts is just really funny and he was doing his best to sell those moments yeah i enjoyed him throughout he's got a great presence um i'll talk a little bit more about him later he's definitely on my list of good things but um at this point i know him from a lot of things and I will say that if I were personally casting a comedy, his agent would be someone I would call because I like him in everything I see him in. Yeah, he's somebody I think I would probably want to be friends with. Yeah. But, you know, maybe maybe at times tone it back a little bit, but <laughs> he seemed like, it, for the most part, his heart was in the right place. So Rob's in the midst of this the spiral. He can't arouse himself. And it's not until once more, is her name Sally Levinson? whatever her name is, the girl that had bullied him earlier, kicks him one more time really hard in the junk. And uh, he finally comes to, and that's enough. And that's a reference to a line that Stanley had made in each of these loops about a YouTube video of a MMA fighter who gets kicked so hard that he orgasms in in the groin. So it was a nice callback to that line, I thought. And then at this point, Rob is basically full on in the depression phase. And in Groundhog Day, this is where he's jumping off buildings and bringing toasters into the bathtub. But but here he just, Rob kind of has a resignation about everything. He starts the day. He doesn't even bother pretending to care about keeping his plans with Gabrielle. He just cancels with her. He mopes around. We do see some good outcomes of him acting kind of without reservation he basically, instead of biting his tongue, he's honest with Stanley about how, Stanley, do you ever talk or think about anything other than your dumb, raunchy jokes, all, all always about sex, why are we even friends type conversation? And actually does have a heart-to-heart with Stanley where they hug. And I thought that was a nice moment. It actually worked for me. Yeah, Stanley says, I would do anything for you. And you buy it. Yeah. During this loop, he tells Gabrielle about it he explains it to her and she's incredulous but she gives him a secret that she's never told anyone so that if he uses it in future loops she'll know for sure that he actually is in a time loop and it is that she has an abraham lincoln sex fantasy which i appreciated i don't know if you were able to recall this one an abraham lincoln sex fantasy is an element of dazed and confused i appreciate any reference to dazed and confused No, it's been a little while since I saw that one. Although I did appreciate this moment in this film because that's the sort of thing that I would 
want to rely on for a time loop is have you ever had conversations with your friends that it's like okay if i'm in a time loop i'll tell you this or like if i am in a time machine or a body swap or any of these go-to sci-fi premises it's like what do you say here's the passphrase that will connect us my wife and i have a couple of those uh where we like would start an inside joke and the other would finish it or something like that. Mm -hmm. I did like that. Like if you run into your future self or something, what do you say to yourself? Yeah. And this is the first one of these movies that has addressed something like that. What having a, a safe word. Yeah. Like a way to convince someone else quickly that it's true. I guess we sort of get it in death day to you where she like just has to say to, I think the character's name is Ryan. The, uh, the Asian roommate, hey, I know about your t your machine. It creates a time loop. Here's this. And it's like enough for him to immediately understand that she's telling the truth. Mm -hmm. Gabrielle's idea for how to get out of the loop is to go talk to the smartest person they know, who is Arthur, the, the young Shrek character. And this is one of the weirder scenes that kind of stuck out for me as uh, not really fitting in with the rest of the movie. They go talk to Arthur and his mom, Arthur's mom, it's like, you got to go before Nana sees this. Nana doesn't like strangers in the house. And then all of a sudden, the grandma, Nana, pops up. And she's shouting in Armenian and attacking Rob. And there's wrestling. And it's like this physical slapstick humor. Um, and she shouts Jadu Gare at him, which we don't see a subtitle for uh, what that means. But it's going to come up in a bit. And the way that this loop ends is basically Arthur's mom is a curvaceous woman. And during this tussle, basically, she ends up compressed against Rob. Yeah, she's in, she's in between Rob and the grandma trying to break up the fight, but they're all pressed together. I would say I don't think I needed a second physical violence leads to orgasm scene. One might have been enough, but, but that's okay. In the next iteration of the loop, Rob is now convinced that this Nana somehow has cursed him, which I didn't really get. Like, I don't know what his reasoning is, why she's he's never interacted with her. It's not like he interacted with her at the start of the the time loop or anything like that. Right. Well, he asks Arthur what Jadu Gare means, and he says it means curse. So I agree that we had never seen this Nana character before. And so there's no real reason that she would have cursed him or opportunity that she had to curse him. I think it's more just the idea of maybe this situation is a curse. Like I would buy that, but that it came from her, I don't buy. Yeah. And it at least was in line with something that we see in several of these movies, which is that the characters are attempting to understand what is happening to them. Why is this happening? how can they get out of it? Like that's always a part of the struggle and this reckoning, perhaps I am cursed is one that we've seen before. So mm -hmm. it kind of fits in with that. But upon hearing this conversation, Stanley convinces Rob that to break this curse, he has to overcome his greatest obstacle, which Rob figures to be Angela. The fact that he was always prematurely finishing prior to that hookup, he needs to get through a full hookup with Angela 
that will be his greatest obstacle. Yeah, he's just got to edge himself a little longer <laughs> and he'll be out of this thing. And so he flippantly cancels on Gabrielle and just like walks into Angela's classroom and says in front of all the other students and the teachers, hey, I'm going to come over to your place and we're going to hook up tonight, okay? And she's like, uh, okay. So he gets there and she basically admits right away they start hooking up right away and she admits that hey you know what would be great is if we always did this instead of tutoring and then instead you did all of my work for me and it dawns on rob that that's the reason that she had been inviting him over every loop is to try to entrap him in this scheme for him to do all of her schoolwork, and he never should have come here in the first place and this is not what needs to happen for him to break the curse. So he storms out on her. He needs to go somewhere. So just to comment on that for a moment, it's like, if you got a time loop, if you could do this day multiple times, it's like, why, why not finish this one out? <laughs> you know, uh, sure, it's shallow. And you've said in past episodes, transactional, this setup, but... I mean, just just go. I guess the, I guess this is his first time. They say, but I don't know. I think if you've got a time loop, just kind of suss out the possibilities for a, for a little bit a little bit longer. That's interesting. Yeah, my my takeaway was like this loop. He is confronting full on. What is the thing I can do to escape it? And when he realizes it's not this, like he's even in more of a spiral. So. Right. He, he escapes out of it. So when he does storm out, his dad is there because this loop, Rob has completely blown off the interview, this loop, and his dad got wind of it, but he's managed to arrange a makeup. So they're going to go to this makeup interview session, and it's at this hotel bar where the, the Alan Tudyk character is just getting smashed. But he actually kind of starts to open up to rob a little bit and like be honest about what do you really want and stuff and it begins to dawn on rob that really what he actually cares about is gabrielle he sees the spelling bee on the tv that's the thing that's important to him he's been in love with her and hasn't really realized it and this spelling bee tradition is really the most important thing for him as part of this he also gets the bravery to tell his dad that he doesn't really care about georgetown Going there is not really his dream. He just wants to go to a good school, which, you know, we see him as a good student, so he probably will. And Rob's dad and Jack basically accept this and agree to bring Rob to Gabrielle's. Yeah, when he gets to Gabrielle's, he basically opens up on his theory. His working theory now is that he threw off the day when he canceled on her and went to Angela's. And so now he's trying to write that. So... The way that he'll do that is he'll come watch the spelling bee with her. But she is, at this point, understandably pretty pissed at him. He's basically just blown her off for another girl. And so they kind of go back and forth. And she's like, I want you out of my room. And he's like, well, I know how you think the loop ends. So I'm just going to finish you off so that the loop will restart and you'll be gone. But after they go back and forth a little bit, he admits how much he cares about her and how he feels about her. And they agree to watch the spelling bee together. By the way, this whole time, 
Rob's dad and the Georgetown interviewer Jack are still standing outside. I don't know why. So you may have mixed feelings about this, but I thought Alan Tudyk standing there outside the window was really, really funny. I was laughing hard at this. Just how invested he suddenly is that this is going to be his night now is <laughs> helping Rob fulfill his destiny <laughs> with this girl for some reason. Yeah, it was pretty funny, but I, I did think it undercut the sense of romance and connection and the love epiphany that was occurring there. But I, to your point, it's, it's pretty funny. I can see that. It reminded me of like in Superbad when they're the cops who just want McLovin to think that they're cool. So like, hey, we'll let you take pot shots at our cop car. Yeah. <laughs> I just watched that movie less than a week ago. It's so funny. And the the bit where they they arrest McLovin to like make him look like a badass. Yeah. There's lots of that yeah. stuff. Just there. just any time that an a kind of off the rails adult character yeah. <laughs> decides that what's important right now is this random kid makes me laugh. So as they're watching the spelling bee together. They kiss and they start, things start getting a little steamy. They, they start hooking up. And once again, Rob finishes prematurely. But this is the very first time since, since the start of the loop that him coming to orgasm does, does not restart the cycle. It's because, yep, he had to determine what was important. And that was hooking up with Gabrielle, apparently. And we see the spelling bee champion crowned go to credits. There is one stinger scene in the credits and also the outtakes you were talking about. The stinger scene is we see Jack once again doing the interview, but we don't see who the interviewee is. And it turns out to be Angela. And we see that she's basically going to try to seduce Jack to get that spot at Georgetown. Uh, I enjoyed the, the outro music in the credits. It was Tongue Tied by Group Love, which was one of these inescapable, chirpy indie songs from the early 2010s. So that wraps up Premature 2014. I think we should point out something that has come to the fore as a reliable way to break out of a time loop seems to be to hook up with a brunette. <laughs> I think every single one we've watched has had that. Groundhog Day, yeah. it's Andy McDowell. In Palm Springs, it's Kristen Milioti. Although that also kicks off the time loop, but that ends it too. Right. And Happy Death Day, Tree gets together with Carter. And now here we see Rob getting together with Gabrielle. We'll see if the brunette, I don't know, what's the opposite of a jinx? The, the brunette charm continues to work. Yeah, I'm pretty sure they're like 11 in this next one. So we'll have to see how that goes, but maybe we'll keep betting a thousand. So, so, so a blonde is not going to do it for you. So you got to find a brunette. So uh, I'll put a picture of myself here in the uh, article. For, for any of those attractive young women who uh, might be stuck in a time loop, Brian is thoroughly available. Yeah, I'll, I'll help you out. <laughs> I'm ready to talk about some good things. Premature 2014. Sounds good. My first good thing is... See, I, I'm almost disappointed I spoiled it. I, I assume you would have caught up on it anyways. Did you realize that this was the exact set of tropes that we spent quite a bit of time talking about in the Some Kind of Wonderful episode? I did put that together. So I did not know that before I watched the movie. I thought I had seen every single version of it. Let me remind listeners of what 
this series of tropes is that I have a weird obsession with seeing every single example of. So there is a guy and a girl who are platonic good friends and the guy gets a shot with some other girl, usually like a popular girl, attractive bombshell girl of your dreams type girl. And through the course of that ends up realizing that he has romantic feelings for the best friend all along. So it's, it's not Susie Crabgrass you want to go after it's Moe's and it's, it's not Betty Quinlan. It's Cindy Vortex. <laughs> what is that latter one? I don't know that one. Uh, it's Jimmy Neutron, which I bring up a lot. It was one of the first shows I watched on cable. I was already probably a little outside the demographic, but I like it. People say it's a Dexter's Lab knockoff. I don't care. Where is that on your small screen 66? I got to check. I think it's in the middle somewhere. Gotcha. Like 30 something. I do feel like that one comes up a lot. You've mentioned that in several episodes. So So Ned's Declassified is to me the canonical example, but some kind of wonderful was too. There's a couple other movies that I might pitch down the line that that have that as an element. And one of the things that I defined in the Some Kind of Wonderful episode is in terms of how well I evaluate whether that series of tropes was executed well, that story structure, is I have three questions. So the first question is, is there good chemistry between the protagonist and the best friend, but also some plausibility that it is not romantic between them at the start of the story. And how'd you think it went in this one? I would give it a check mark in this one. I think it did that pretty well. I think you can buy that they're just kind of buddies. They, they have that chemistry. I chalk that mostly up to John Karna. He's got pretty easygoing chemistry with everyone here. Um, I, I did buy it. What about you? Yeah, I agree. That's what I felt. The second question is, do we buy that the protagonist would be head over heels lusting for this other girl. Uh, in this case, it's Angela. And I'm going to, again, give this a check on that one. Yes, I buy this. She was a fine young woman. And it's not necessarily just about the attractiveness, but about the way that she carries herself. Yeah, and the, I mean, it comes together like you can kind of buy that for some reason she is interested in him. But it's... The possibility that it is genuine and not having strings attached seems like it's there. Agreed, yeah. The last one is, is the love epiphany believable? Do we buy that going through this, he could all of a sudden realize that he has romantic feelings for his best friend? And I actually think this is where the time loop really shines on this one, because in a time loop, you really have the opportunity to look at the basic tenets of your life and seeing them in repeat over and over again, really think critically about them. And I actually bought this one too. I thought that worked pretty well here. I could see him coming to this realization that that's what was important. That's what he actually cared about. I bought the epiphany here much more than in Some Kind of Wonderful. Agreed. That, that was one weakness that we agreed on for Some Kind of Wonderful. I'm with you there for sure. So I would say, honestly, as that type of story goes... This one did it pretty well. I was pretty pleased as a connoisseur of that. I don't know how this one slipped through the cracks for me. I thought I had seen them all, but I guess I haven't. I guess I got to check out Jimmy Neutron too. <laughs> I would recommend it. 
it is maybe not essential, but <laughs> I like it. And my brother does too. Another good thing. I mean, I just really had a sense of giddiness watching this movie. Just the premise. It's just so ridiculous. I always felt like I was getting away with something watching this movie. The fact that this movie existed, that somebody made a raunchy teen comedy Groundhog Day where sex misadventures make your loops reset. Like if you were to pitch a movie to me that I would instantly be like, oh yeah, I'm in. I got to go see that movie. This one is pretty much up there. It was just a very fun, wild premise that I was smiling the whole way through. It's a great idea. And like I said, just gives the protagonist more control over the time loop than you usually see in a hilarious way. It also made me think a little bit of the Team Star Kid musical, Me and My Dick. I know you've you've watched through that one. Dan. I have. Yeah, I like that one. That one is fun. Um, just in the sense of a premise that is very raunchy and seems like it might be off-putting, but in some ways actually ends up being kind of charming. Agreed. And And to that point, it isn't just the premise, but there's some audacity with how frank it is about it. Like, honestly, just the fact that it opens with this shot of the character having a wet dream, these soiled underpants that the mom walks in on, just such a cringy thing to be the cue for the start of the loop over and over again. And like the fact that he constantly has to try to masturbate to get out of the time loop. I just was glad that it went there. I'm glad that a movie exists where it went there. And yeah, the scene when the cops are coming and he's like, looking around desperately for <laughs> some kind of lube to use. He grabs mayonnaise. And just the way that it's edited is like usual suspects or something. Like he's grabbing bits of inspiration from around the office. <laughs> oh, because first he's got to find a find a picture to masturbate to. And then he's got to find the the lotion substitute. And yeah, he's piecing it together like Kaiser Soze. <laughs> yeah. Fun movie, fun gag. I would say another thing that works for this movie overall and in general is just a strength is that I think most of the cast is pretty great in this movie. Um, I liked John Karna, the star. I don't know him from anything else. Apparently he is a recurring character in the TV show version of Scream, which I didn't even know there was a TV show version of Scream, but apparently there was or is, and he he's in that. But um, as the movie started, I... Wasn't sure how I felt about him. He seemed fine, but just kind of a blank slate. But as the movie went along, I actually thought he hit all the shades of time loop victim pretty well and really built chemistry with the rest of the cast. I thought I thought he was a good lead. I agree. He struck me, at least at the start, as a little bit of a blank slate. But you're right that he goes through the time loop paces in a compelling way and gets his arc, which really seems to be the key requirement of making one of these movies good. Right. We'd already sung the praises of Craig Roberts, the best friend Stanley. He's got charisma. He's got comic chops. He is he's lead material, in my opinion. He's he's pretty excellent. So he had starred in a movie called Submarine, which is a coming-of-age movie from 2010 that has always been on my radar as one to watch, but I've never actually watched. And um, shortly after this movie, he would star in the Red Oaks TV series. It was an Amazon Prime TV series, which I got really into and really hyped about. And what's the angle of that one? I've heard of Red Oaks, but 
Yeah. I don't remember what that's about. Yeah, so the premise is basically that it's the 1980s and it's like a great big pastiche to the summertime comedies of the 1980s. Uh, all the teen comedies from there, but particularly the movies where it took place at like a summer camp or something like that. So he, Craig Roberts is the lead and he plays a tennis instructor at a country club where he has all these misadventures and it, it's a good show. The pilot is really good. And the way that Amazon used to release their shows is they would make pilots and then let users give feedback on the pilots and then only pick up the show. If the pilots were well-received, which had the byproduct of you would go like more than a year between seeing the pilot and seeing any other episodes. So to me, the pilot of Red Oaks is like almost this short film that stands on its own. That's just really spectacular. I think I recall that like Zombieland 2 was initially a Amazon pilot. And I don't know if they ever actually made the show. And then eventually they made real Zombieland 2. Gotcha. And that one ended up going on for three seasons and it was pretty good, but it never quite reached the heights of the pilot, but I still liked it quite a bit. Um, He also starred in a Netflix movie called Fundamentals of Caring, but he hasn't been too active since then. He's someone I want to see more of. If I were casting something, I'd call his agent for sure. So another highlight we already talked about a lot, but Alan Tudyk was just a delight whenever he was on screen, particularly when he was crying. So. Yeah. Anytime I come across Alan Tudyk, he tends to elevate a movie for me. Although I will say, given that this was a raunchy, dick-centric comedy, I've always hoped that we might get a movie where Alan Tudyk has two dicks. (laughs) And it hasn't come up yet. (laughs) Two dick, two dick. Yeah, that's good. (laughs) And I think something that worked well in this movie, I got the sense that there was improv at work. Like, especially in the interview scenes or some of the cracks that the sidekick Craig Roberts got to make, that they probably ran these scenes a bunch of times and just encouraged the actors to say what comes to mind. And then we'll, you know, run it again with that as the official line. Yeah, I think you're probably right. Because we see some of this in the end credits where it's like outtakes and extra takes of them doing things slightly differently especially alan tudyk in the interviews yeah (laughs) and it was very funny although you can't do too much of that in a movie like this because one of the rules is things need to happen the same way that's that's right a lot of it has to keep continuity right so but i agree there's there's likely some of that another thing i liked about this movie there are some heartfelt moments that i actually thought worked a lot of raunchy comedies will try to have turns to some sort of coming of age truth. And I would say they can be hit or miss. I felt like most of them worked here for me, Uh, particularly when he was connecting with Gabrielle in one loop. And when he was connecting with Stanley, the Craig Roberts character in, in another loop. And to the point of kind of character development, I liked that we got to hit all of the sort of groundhog day phases of emotional extremes. Although briefly, and often in bizarre circumstances, but you have the freedom at the lack of consequences. You have the dread that this is my life now. You have the, oh, weird, am I experiencing deja vu? You have the, I don't know, just all of the, 
learning truths about yourself, trying things out. It was all there in bits and pieces. I got the sense, though, that kind of like in Happy Death Day, there are fewer reps to this loop than in some other time loop movies. Yeah, I definitely agree. It w- this does not seem like a 10,000 year run. Right. I think that's part of the reason that these are kind of brief. I think we see every single one, so we could probably count it. It's in the realm of 10, I think. The last thing I wanted to say that was a strength for this movie, I laughed really hard a bunch of times. I did feel that some of the raunch was kind of forced and didn't make me laugh as much, but there were lots of moments and lines where I laughed. I mentioned Alan Tudyk crying. I liked when they were joking about the the spelling bee and his weird clothes and stuff. There was good cast chemistry. This didn't need to be as raunchy as it was and could have been just as charming, in my opinion. Although, I don't know how you do this premise without making it as raunchy as it is, so maybe not. Right. I was not as put off by the raunchiness in this one as in Step Brothers because I felt like it kind of relied on that when you've got a dick time machine, (laughs) certain ground is expected to be covered. I think that's fair. But I I think you're right that it's got a heart separate from that. Right. So that was basically my pretty complete list of good things for this movie. Did you have any more? Yeah, I think we've nailed it. Um, I've tried to share my thoughts as well. This was another one where one of the benefits of having the overarching theme of the month determine what we pick lets us kind of go into movies that we don't know as much about. And so pretty much I'm guaranteed to have low expectations or just no expectations. And so when it ends up being a positive experience, I feel all the more rewarded. It's funny that you, you mentioned that this movie as an example of something that you're, that the month would let you see, because this was actually the movie that gave me the idea for the theme month. Because I was going to just pick Palm Springs in honor of Groundhog Day. And I, in researching Palm Springs, stumbled upon the Wikipedia list of time loop movies and was scrolling through them and saw this one and saw what the premise was. And I was like, okay, I absolutely need to see this movie. And it started to occur to me that maybe we could talk about a bunch of time loop movies. So this one definitely plays a role in the, in the narrative of our, our theme month here. But maybe now we can pivot to talking about some not so good things. Yeah. So what were some things that rubbed you the wrong way? So when I watch things with my wife, TV shows, movies, there's a phrase that I apparently use a lot because my wife started making fun of me for saying it. And now I kind of become almost a joke in and of itself. But uh, we'll watch it and I'll say, I think that script needed one more edit, which is basically my way of saying there's promise there. But stuff's rough around the edges and feels like they maybe needed to think through a couple of the details a little bit, uh, weed out some of the less compelling stuff, make the more compelling stuff a little bit tighter. I think this movie is exactly that here. This is a script that needed one more edit. There's a lot of stuff around the edges that doesn't stand up to the same level of scrutiny as some of the, the better stuff. Some of the timing feels sort of out of order. There's like characters that seem like they came up with them as like, oh, we could include this character, 
but then didn't really figure out how to really utilize them in a fully comprehensible manner or really good payoff or whatever. One example is there's this character named Uzi who's a foreign exchange student, I think, or something like that, who's always at Angela's house when he goes there for the hookup. And I had no explanation for why this Uzi character existed. I guess it was supposed to be funny how he was like this intimidating guy off-putting when he arrived at Angela's, but I felt like this is an example of a character that if you were going to do another edit on a script, you would either cut him or figure out how to make him meaningful in some way. Right, because in a time loop movie, it gives the suggestion that each of these characters that the protagonist meets is a lead that could be followed to a side quest. And that in the perfect rep of the day or in a quirky rep of the day, perhaps the protagonist will follow this character to a conclusion of some kind of arc for them. But we don't get that sense with these characters. I agree. And there are a few of them. That's that's very well said. That captures it exactly what I was thinking. There, there are a few more of them. That hall monitor appears for one scene, but we, I don't think, had any previous encounters with him. Gabrielle's dad appears for one scene. I don't know. Uh, the Sally Levinson character, you pointed out there's that connection from the very first loop where the dad talks about him being bullied, which I had missed. But I still feel like there was opportunity to do a little more with that character. The whole Stanley's friends with benefits thing. We get one loop that kind of pays off on that. So that one wasn't that bad. But I still feel like, I don't know, we could have had some resolution on that or something. When we're Stanley and her actually become girlfriend and boyfriend in one loop or something. I don't know. So yeah, that was just kind of my general reaction. That there could have been a little more polish in the, the script, in the story, in the dialogue. I would definitely excitedly watch a version of this that was a lot less about punchlines and jokes and more about payoff on all of these plot threads like you were talking about. I want to see, oh, what happens to the volleyball jocks? Do they get their comeuppance in the final version of the loop? I don't know. Right. That's something that Groundhog Day really delivers on. And so kind of becomes what we expect. That finally, when Phil has a really good run of the day, you know, we get to see, oh, what's the right thing that he should say to Ned? And what's the right thing that he should say to Doris at the cafe? And like, he's running around just helping every possible person. He's like, you know, got the watch and be here at point A at time B. Right. That's a good point. We kind of got a high standard set for ourselves, But I also feel like Happy Death Day did this pretty well, too. There's the one loop. It ends up being a fake out final loop. But the one loop that we initially think might be the very last loop where she gets everything just right. She escapes the serial killer and ends the day with eating the cupcake with Carter. That also kind of does the same thing, too. Mm -hmm. Another thing that bothered me, and I kind of touched on this already, the jokes were hit or miss for me. Um, any comedy, especially one that tries to push the boundaries of good taste a little bit, is going to have some of that. Um, it's it's uncommon to get a movie like Super Bad, where basically every single line and every single joke sticks with me. But uh, this one had a couple of big oofs. The worst one I mentioned was the <laughs> Craig Roberts being the Asian stereotype. Uh, talk dirty. Although I did appreciate how much Roberts leaned into that. 
Were there any moments or jokes that did not land with you that you can think of? Mm. I just kind of rolled with the punches here. The me so horny bit was <laughs> the most outlandish. It seemed like a holdover from an earlier era. Right. Uh, at the same time, though, this, I think, shows how things have changed just in the last couple years. Like, I don't know if they would still have that now. But, I mean, who can say? I think they were trying to be edgy, and that might be something where your mileage varies. I agree. Yeah, that is an element of any comedy is, as you said, roll with the punches. I saw this movie twice, and if you see a comedy twice, you Jokes can grate on you a little bit, has been my experience rewatching comedies. But oh man, that should be the next layer of our time loop movie <laughs> is we have to loop the movie X number of times. Have you ever listened to the podcast? I think it's called The Worst Idea in the History of Ever or something like that. No. So, man, this would be right up your alley. It's these group of, I think they're Australian, but it's this group of guys. I've only listened to one or two episodes where they pick a bad movie and usually it's not a so bad it's good movie it's just a bad movie and they watch the movie every week for a year <laughs> and talk about it every week so they have seasons and i think each season is 52 episodes oh my gosh and so every week they check back in and talk about the same movie again yes and it's usually a dumb movie like they did grown-ups 2 i think <laughs> Sex in the City too, I think. Yeah, you should go check out this thing, but it's it's basically what you just said, that there's like an element of endurance. Man, yeah, that is just an incredible amount of dedication. That's almost like a religious order or something. <laughs> but I hear, I haven't actually listened to that much of it, but they get into like theories about the characters and like different ways you can interpret them and it's speculating on what their lives might be outside of what we see in the movie and stuff and they get deep into the lore as we've said well i mean i i think even listening to that would be an undertaking <laughs> 52 episodes well wow. i could be wrong on the count i might need to to look it up i should try a season's worth at least <laughs> the mcelroy brothers who i assume you're familiar with are they my brother my brother and me yes and the adventure zone they <laughs> basically teamed up with those guys to create a new spin-off podcast called Till Death Do Us Blart. And every Thanksgiving they watch Paul Blart Mall Cop 2. So rather than like one dedicated season of 52 times, their ideas for the rest of their lives, they're going to <laughs> to watch Paul Blart Mall Cop 2 on Thanksgiving, record a podcast to talk about it. And uh, I, I I listened to the first couple and it's very funny. I, I need to catch up with it because I think they're on like five or six now. That's wild. I actually <laughs> saw Paul Blart Mall Cop 2 in theaters when I had a movie pass in 2015. That was one of your unlimited free movies. That's right. Not good. <laughs> and part of the gag of that one is they claim that when they die, the podcast isn't go is not going to go away because they're going to recruit replacements. If one of them dies, they need to bring in someone else so that it's an eternal podcast that this rewatch ritual will go on for for centuries to come. Oh, man. Okay. I didn't prepare notes for this, and time is already winding down. But I think next week I got to talk about deep time 
Have you ever read anything about deep time? No. All right, I'm going to come with some some talking points about that because it is a very interesting Wikipedia rabbit hole. It's it's basically projects that are intended to take a super long time. Oh, I know at least one of them. It's this piece that's going to take like hundreds or maybe thousands of years to perform. Yes, the organ music piece that takes 600 years or something. They they determined the lifetime of an organ if you maintain it right because I guess it can play a note for any duration, just when the key is pressed down to when it is lifted up, that'll be one tone. So they were going to change a note in 2020. I mean, I think they did change a note in 2020, but one of my friends is really into that whole project and he was going to fly out to Germany or wherever it is to see the note change. Apparently it's, it's gathered a bit of like a following because one note will last like three years. And so everybody will come for the big note change and it's just one tone to another tone, but it's like a, a religious thing almost, as he said. So well, that's the key one anyway. So if you are interested listeners, read the Wikipedia article about as slowly as possible, uh, which was by some modernist composer, possibly John Cage. Don't hold it against me if I got that wrong. I think it was John Cage, but if you look at the see also section, there's other projects dedicated to deep time. That was a bit of a tangent there. I'm going to bring us back to a topic at hand. Premature 2014. We were listing some not so good things. I had one more pretty big one I wanted to bring up. I liked most of the cast. I thought Kate Findlay, who plays Gabrielle, was not so good. I thought she was mediocre at best. She has some chemistry with John Karna, the lead actor, but I just thought her performance felt really phoned in. I didn't get much of a sense of an internal life or emotional arc for her character. Like I really wanted to know what was she feeling as her good friend, best friend, who she's secretly in love with, is going through all these ups and downs and is doing all these crazy things and what is she feeling? And I never really got a sense of that. She was just kind of standing there as these things happened. And I really wanted more out of that that character and that, that acting performance. Yeah, it kind of felt like they hid her in the background a little bit. I kind of felt about her the way I felt about the roommate killer in Happy Death Day, mm. where it's like, you know, my eyes are looking around through the movie and in the last one, it's, oh, who's the killer? Who's the killer? And she's kind of a uh, non-entity. I just don't notice her. So they they kind of hit her behind the scenes. And here I was looking for, oh, what's going to be the out of the time loop? What's it going to be? What's he got to do? And it, she was not immediately apparent to me as the out. I picked it up on the first time loop, but I can I can see that line of reasoning. I guess my objection to that is that I mean, it's like the thrust of the story. And that one, it's supposed to be a twist you don't see coming. But in here, it's like the thrust of his emotional growth is that he realized that the, the life that he's living, the things that have been important to him are really what he should be appreciating and embracing, not this kind of distant dream of Georgetown that his dad has. But I don't know. When we talked about some kind of wonderful, by contrast, I thought the actress who played Watts in that Mary Stewart Masterson that she was the acting highlight of that film. So maybe mm -hmm. I just had high expectations here. Just a couple other quick thoughts. One thing that really bothered me about the movie, the last loop, I felt like 
left a couple of things hanging that I wouldn't want in the last loop. So one is that this is the loop where he was really cruel to Arthur to figure out about the curse. So like the reality that he's going to live going forward is that he dunked Arthur in the toilet. He didn't and never reconciled with him. So, I mean, I know that we're not supposed to be huge fans of Arthur, but that feels like kind of a mean spirited thing to leave hanging. Yeah, I didn't actually realize until now that that was part of the final loop. I thought it was the penultimate one. That last loop takes almost 20 minutes. So you start to forget the things that were happening kind of at the beginning. And also, he doesn't really have a good heart to heart with Stanley in the final loop. That happens in a previous loop. I mean, I guess Rob has learned how Stanley feels, but that actual interaction is gone to the sands of time. Although I feel like that's a sort of thing that you could do on another day if you wanted to. That's true. Yeah. He seems like a ride or die homie and he won't be going anywhere. So you could do that part tomorrow. As a purist of the love epiphany, I'll raise again that I was a little disappointed that (laughs) the adults were awkwardly hanging around during uh, Rob and Gabrielle's final hookup. Like Gabrielle's dad, who we had never met prior to this last scene, like shows up when her shirt is off at one point. And it's like, oh, I'm sorry. What are you doing? Sort of gag. But then he just kind of stands there for like another several minutes. Yeah, I don't know. That was kind of interesting because normally you think that the girl's dad is going to be scary and mean and you'll never be good enough for my daughter. But I mean, they have known each other a super long time. So it's just kind of like, oh, so this is what's happening now. Right. And then, of course, we had Alan Tudyk's character and Rob's dad hanging out outside, which <laughs> they were like looking in the window and stuff. That was a little weird, as I mentioned, but it was, it was super goofy. But I thought that was really funny. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I mean, obviously, it's awkward humor through awkwardness, humor through not being something that would really happen. But I liked how jazzed Alan Tudyk was <laughs> about what was going on. I'm glad it worked for you. I got to say, in general, you seem more on board with this movie than I was predicting that you would be. Although we'll see in just a few minutes what your actual final rating is. Yeah, ultimately, I would say this is one that was a pleasant surprise. Gotcha. Yeah, that's cool. I'm glad that you more or less dug it. I had a few assorted thoughts that I couldn't fit anywhere else that I just I really wanted to make sure I noted prior to wrapping up this episode. And then we're also going to have our how is it or how is it not Groundhog Day bit in just a sec. But a few other quick observations. So. So the actress who plays Angela is Carlson Young. Do you know anything about Carlson Young? No, although I will say that I looked up her name because I wanted to know if I had seen her in anything else. So she is this up and coming director auteur, which is not something you would necessarily guess from being like a fourth build in an indie comedy a few years ago. But she had uh, just like a month ago, her debut director written effort came out to some pretty big buzz at Sundance called The Blazing World. And it's this really artsy movie that I heard uh, a critic call The Fall meets Pan's Labyrinth, which sounded like a compelling combination. I don't know. Yeah, definitely. Anything that's like The Fall, I would be interested to see. That's a movie that it's like artsy filmgoers appreciate, but Beyond that, doesn't get talked about very much. Right. Another uh, connection to the goods, our past. So we talked about how this has 
the same story beats of some kind of wonderful that I appreciated. But there's actually a pretty strong connection to the movie The Founder. Two of the actresses in this film, the teacher that Rob gropes, as well as Rob's mom, both are in The Founder. I didn't recognize their roles just by their names, but I noticed it on their IMDb pages. I think maybe Rob's mom was the secretary, possibly. I can't remember. But they they both appeared in The Founder, apparently. That's interesting. Yeah, now I'm going to have to go back through <laughs> because I, they didn't jump out to me as being in there, but uh, that's that's interesting. I recall that The Founder was another one that received your, the script needed another edit. Yes. Judgment, and, and maybe more than one. <laughs> All right, before we get to our final judgment, one of our recurring segments during Time Loop Month, how was this movie like Groundhog Day and how is it not like Groundhog Day? We kind of hit some of these, so I think we can go through this pretty quick, but it's it's kind of nice to see them all grouped together here. Yeah, so like Groundhog Day, the loop starts over with the protagonist in bed. That's been a, a, a recurring theme throughout all of the time loop movies that we've seen so far. Right, we haven't quite broken free of that yet. Also, as we've touched on, the protagonist goes through a string of worldviews and ways of feeling about their situation in the time loop. There's a stage where they appreciate that there's no consequences and they live a hedonistic lifestyle. And there's a stage where they're super depressed and cynical. And there's an early stage where they're just bored with the repetition and going crazy because of that. Another one that we've already brought up, the brunette charm, the key to escape. It's been in, been in all of them, including Groundhog Day, including this one. Yeah. So when I did catch on to that Gabrielle was the right way to go, it was partly because of that theme, <laughs> as well as the parallels with some kind of wonderful. With whatever we watch next, I'm definitely going to be be looking for that. So I'll be ready. A couple things that are different, as with some of the movies we watched more recently especially the happy death days it seemed like the loop didn't last as long in terms of how many repetitions the character went through yeah we distinctly see all of them and obviously the ability to jerk off and restart (laughs) everything gave the character a lot more agency than we've seen previously the dick time machine did you have anything else you wanted to point out in terms of similarities or differences yeah, actually, I was looking at the Groundhog Day rules the, that I outlined in the Palm Springs episode. I, I came up with five Groundhog Day time loop rules. And this movie pretty much nails them, I got to say. Upon a trigger, the character returns to a previous moment, unchanged except for memories. Check. The cause and end of the loop are more or less unknown to the characters. Check. We don't really know what causes this. And it's not clear to him until the end what it's going to be that ends it. Uh, Three, everything happens the same each loop, except for what the character changes. We definitely see that. Um, The character in the loop uh, runs the gamut of emotional and philosophical extremes. Well, we already talked about definitely does that. And the time loop ends directly or indirectly upon completion of an arc of growth for the character. I mean, that arc may be getting together with girl, but there's a little more to it than that. And certainly the loop comes to an end when that arc has been reached. So I would say this hits the Groundhog Day rules pretty squarely. It works as a chapter in the Groundhog verse. <laughs> I like that, the Groundhog verse. So I think that brings us to our signature section. Is it good? Brian, is Premature 2014 good? So I've found that a lot of these movies 
are landing in the five and six range for me, the good and very good. It it leaves me wanting a movie that <laughs> I will end up hating. I, I think we need we need something that it would just be terrible. I guess correct the curve a little bit because I enjoyed this one quite a bit. I think this one is going to land at a six for me, actually a very good. I thought it was well done, delivers, as we've said many times on the promise of the premise. It felt comically rewarding the first time we realized that what was going to be the engine of the time loop here was the orgasms you know especially coming off the one where it was somebody dying you know death was the trigger here it's the little death as i believe i've heard is a french term for an orgasm <laughs> um but yes it was funny actors were well cast got a surprise appearance by alan tudyk there this one is riding high in my estimation six you were vibing that's something you've said a few times when, yes. you, when you've liked a movie so where did it fall for you dan so for me, this is the epitome of a movie where the is it good scale is very difficult because I have to grapple with my very subjective biases versus the actual craft of the film. Because if it were some other genre, some other set of tropes, if it wasn't a time loop movie, if it wasn't a best friend, swan love movie, I think I would have been a lot more critical of some of the things that I pointed out of the quote unquote, the script needs one more edit elements of this because those are the kind of things that can really bother me. That said, it, <laughs> as I mentioned earlier, if you were to try to come up with a movie that you could pitch to me that would instantly get me to watch it, a goofy teen comedy that's pretty raunchy but has heart and is a time loop and the best friends fall in love, that would basically be immediately there for me. So I guess where I'm going with this is I'm going to give this movie as high a rating as I can in good conscience, knowing that I have some serious objectivity issues on this film. Then another example of this for me was uh, Everybody Wants Some, third episode. I also had to grapple with how high could I comfortably in good conscience give th that film. For this one, interestingly, it's the same place that you landed. I I'm going to give this movie a very good because I had an absolute blast watching it. I think it's got plenty of flaws, but I just had a blast watching it and I love the premise. And I would say if you like the pitch, watch it. If you don't like the pitch, you're probably not going to like the movie. But if you like the pitch, everything I just said, then I think you will have a very good time because I absolutely had a very good time watching this movie. This is a, a nice long string of movies where we have given the movie the same rating, Brian. You're right. <laughs> it almost cheapens the... The, the competing viewpoints, but I guess... Right, we need to <laughs> fight more. We need yeah. some something polarizing. I'll be sure to either hate or love the next one and try to guess which one your opinion is going to be so that we can be different on I'll that. I'll do my best. <laughs> no, we got to be honest. And That's right, and I think we have been so far, so... Yeah, I think if we're on the same wavelength, yeah, we should be true to that. Well, that wraps up our third outing in Time Loop Month. So, Brian, what are you going to have us watch for Time Loop Month number four? So the next movie that we will be watching is one I heard about quite a bit ago. i got to check what the actual year is. Okay, it's from 2007. It's called The Last Day of Summer. And it's about a kid reliving, I guess it's the last day of sixth grade. 
it says last day. I thought it was the last day of middle school. I guess it's the last day before middle school. Right. I would imagine it's the last day of summer, not of school, given the title. You're probably right. <laughs> that would make sense. But I guess we'll have to watch. OK. And it was a Nickelodeon movie. So it's it's not a decom, but it's close. It was a, a TV movie made by Nickelodeon. Gotcha. So NCOM. Yeah, I, I suppose so. A Nikon, NCOM. <laughs> broadcast originally july 20th 2007 so i remember seeing the ads for it but i did not watch it at the time i've never heard of this one but i will certainly watch it and we'll be talking about it next week i wonder how many people (laughs) have a copy of this movie (laughs) this will be one that maybe goes over the audience's head yeah we had to do we had to do some hunting well i mean nothing wrong with us bringing some movies to your attention that you might not come across otherwise i think that's a service that we can provide agreed cool well i'll look forward to it i hope you have enjoyed yourself brian perhaps not quite as much as rob enjoyed himself at gabrielle's at the end of this movie oh you don't know what i'm doing on the other (laughs) side of this microphone dan that's everybody can be glad that podcasts are audio only because i've just been (laughs) jerking up a storm (laughs) well thanks for that image as we wrap up this episode as always it was it was a pleasure And I will see you next week. Yep. Talk to you soon. Hope you join us again here on The Goods.